Back up the middle, off the mound, to the shortstop Hernandez. Save number 399 for Kenley Jansen in his big league career leads to an eighth consecutive Boston Red Sox win, their longest streak in two years. The 0-2 again. Swing and a miss. He got him. And that's 400 for Kenley Jansen. And he does it with a strikeout in the ninth inning in Atlanta. That has to be oh so sweet for the right-hander. 400 saves. Alex Cora walked by me after the game, Kenley, and said of your last pitch, 99? Where'd you find that, Kenley? That's that 2010 Kenley, man. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, May 11th, 2023. We have a whole bunch of things to talk about. We are going to eat a little bit of crow about the Red Sox. Not too much, but we're going to give them a lot of credit for like what turns out to actually have been a pretty solid winter. We're going to talk about the man who might be baseball's best starting pitcher that I guarantee 90% of you could not guess. Uh, we're going to talk about how the Braves are down two of their best starters. We have to talk about what Ellie De La Cruz is doing. And if you don't know who that is, trust me, you're going to want to. And then Matt and I will both end by talking about a guy you should know a little bit more about. Our two guys have something in common where it's taken them a number of organizations to get to the star level seasons they're having. Matt, neither one of us were that high on the 2023 Boston Red Sox, and I'm still not, I guess, but I have to admit I was pretty unkind to them for most of the winter. And here they are, 22-16. and 16. Uh, They are third place in a very talented American League East. And I don't know if I'd say they're good so much as I would say they're chaotic good in the sense that they're, I don't know how many games they're going to win. But it's always an exciting game because they they're going to score runs and also give up a lot of runs and something weird will happen and like that's better than being bad and boring. Um, but I will start with this: I thought they would lose like eighty eight games, and I no longer think that they are much better than I thought. We'll get into the reasons why. Uh, was it fair to say I was maybe a little bit lower on them than you were? I wasn't exactly high on the Red Sox, but I was not nearly as skeptical as you were. The lineup we thought could be pretty good, and it's pretty good. And a lot of that's Yoshida, who's been fantastic, arguably the best free agent signing of the offseason to date. We're only five weeks into what was a five-year contract, I think he signed. And some of these contracts signed over the offseason were like for 11 years. So there's a lot of time to render our final judgments on some of these deals. But the lineups between him and Devers and Alex Verdugo has been really good. The starting pitching is not good, as we expected. And the bullpen, or at least very least Kenley Jansen at the end of games, another free agent signing, has been fantastic. Yeah, I want to get into Kenley Jansen in a minute. Uh, the Red Sox right now, by weighted runs created plus, have the fourth best offense overall. But it's that is heavily concentrated in the outfield because they have the best outfield offense, which is somewhat shocking because you mentioned Yoshida and you mentioned Verdugo. You did not mention Jaron Duran, who's been awesome. Who there was a cool story the other day where, you know, I don't remember if it was over the winter or in spring training or whatever, where Dustin Pedroia was just like, uh, with words I can't necessarily use on a family podcast saying, man, just put your hands up and hit the ball. <laughs> and he's like, well, Dustin Pedroia is telling me that I'm going to do it. And he has, he's improved his outfield defense. Like Alex Gore has talked about, you know, this guy was a converted infielder. So he's improved his jumps and like the numbers absolutely reflect that. And the weird thing is the infield has not been very good at all. Like Tristan Cassis hasn't been great. The middle infield's been a total mess. And even Devers has been more like good than great, which I think maybe points to there's some growth 
that's possible there. Like the infield could potentially be better than it is now. So when I say that, maybe I was a little low on them. Maybe I, I didn't give enough credit to some of these improvements in the lineup. Did you know they have the worst starting pitching ERA in the long history of the Boston Red Sox? Here, here's the flip side of this. Here's why I'm not like, yeah, go Sox all in. The starting pitching is really, really bad. Uh, there are three, uh, excuse me, six starters who have started at least three games. I'm not even going to say their names. I'm going to read to you six ERAs, 526, 637, 623, 629, 501, and 619. As a great man once said, that's not what you want. I don't know how they fix that. And it's weird because Chris Sale's been throwing hard. Like, he actually looks okay. Eh, is James Paxton the guy who's going to solve this problem? I don't think so. Uh, would you agree with me that the rotation is probably going to hold back any other success they might have had? It's a long season. So, yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that's that's one of the things that's hardest to hide from, right? Like, if you have a bad starting rotation, you can get over it, get by for a few weeks at a time, but it'll eventually catch up to you. And so there's probably a good chance it catches up to them, um, barring any, you know, I actually, I don't know if I expect Chris Sale to stay healthy, but as long as he stays healthy, I expect him to start pitching better. Like now that we're seeing the velocity and seeing some of the stuff and seeing some of the strikeout numbers, I actually feel like, you know, to the extent that he is on the mound right now, eventually the results will start to, will start to follow. Like, you know, he's got a 637 ERA now, um, a 440 expected ERA, which still isn't great, but is a lot better. But like the the strikeout rate is near thirty percent. Like I think that like there's something there as long as he stays on the mound. Of course, it's very easy to imagine a scenario in which Chris Sale starts to put together and then gets hurt. Um, in which case, what are you going to do? I kind of feel like enjoy it while it lasts. I mean, it's, as you said, it's been it's been a fun team. You know, a chaotic team, so to speak. I think that like you know, I mentioned the free agent stuff. Like they've done the best in free agency thus far of any team that like did anything. They but they like their two big moves. They like thus far have like really hit on and that's probably the biggest reason why they are where they are right now now i have a list in front of me of the 30 largest free agent deals of the winter and i'm not going to read you all 30 you can probably guess who most of them are and at the risk of putting too much emphasis on you know the first six weeks of 11 year deals and all that so far of the 30 total dollar uh, the highest dollar deals i evaluated five of them as being like guys who are off to great starts and boston has two of them you know yoshida's been great Jansen's been great. And then you go up and down the list and it's like, oh man, 80 of these guys have been hurt. You know, Judge was hurt and Grom has been hurt and Diaz is out for the year and Verlander and, and Tyone and all these guys. Boston has two of the five like very good performing free agent deals so far. Obviously, that's not going to last, right? Judge will be fine. Trey Turner will be fine. And the one there that really stands out to me is Kenley Jansen looks like peak Kenley Jansen. Like I know he got a lot of praise yesterday for getting his 400th save, which only seven pitchers now have done. I don't care about saves that much, but that's certainly notable when only seven total guys have done it. But he has gotten all of his velocity back. He's actually throwing his cutter harder than he ever has. And if you've watched Kenley Jansen as long as I have, like there was a time early in his career where all I did was write about the Dodgers. <laughs> you know? So he, if you remember, a million years ago was a catcher in the minors, you know, famous for that play in like the very first WBC for the Netherlands. And then he came up and for his entire 20s was maybe the most dominant reliever in baseball. And then over the last five years, it was more like good, but not great. If you looked at 41 saves last year, you're like, oh, he was great. But the underlying stats weren't there, right? Strikeout rate was down and the velocity was down. And this year, he's throwing it harder than ever. Now, why? There's a number of reasons for this. There's a great article in The Athletic uh, that talked about where he uh, changed his training methods to encourage flexibility. He started seeing a therapist, which I think is super cool. Like, 
guys have been much more open about how mental health is as important as physical health. That's obviously been a big deal. Um, I showed my article that he's changed his release point. He's no longer straight over the top. His cutter is moving differently. Less of that late break cutter than it used to be. Now it's more of almost like a four seam invisible kind of thing. And while I was writing about this, I was thinking, you know, in my head, he was a, a more likely than not Hall of Famer. And now I'm thinking he's kind of a slam dunk Hall of Famer. Like if he's not going to get in, who is? You know, how many relievers have we seen show up for three years, four years and disappear? We're like 12 years into Kenley Jansen being great. And now he looks better than ever. It almost like I was watching him close out the Phillies over the weekend. And I almost feel like it was like a tipping point this weekend, maybe because he was like had a couple national TV games where I feel like myself and like a lot of I, I noticed suddenly like I was watching the game and he like was throwing like 97 mile an hour cutters. And I'm like, wait, what's? What's wait? What's going on with Kenley Jansen again? Last night, ninety nine. Last night, can you believe that? I think in the last like four days since then, I feel like I've read, including your piece, I think because I suggested it, but I've seen them elsewhere. Like, hey, Kenley Jansen's back. Like, the weird thing is that, and admittedly, even though his stuff has like not, you know, the last couple of years was not as good as it previously had been, and he felt a lot less unhittable than he did at his peak when you know Pete Kenley Jansen felt like really unhittable even last year if you look at his expected ERA it was 234 and the year before that it was 281 so rumors of his demise were probably exaggerated but I mean like he was one of those guys where at his peak it was you know we're talking like 2016 2017 it was like game over like he came in the game you were like we're, we're not going to score whereas that invincibility was gone the last couple of years and now it feels like it's returned and I gotta say like it's weird to say this about a 35-year-old pitcher, but like he's younger than I think I realized. <laughs> like I kind of was like, oh, he's like, he's like almost 40, right? So, you know, to your point about the Hall of Fame, you know, you don't know when like the, the sort of decline is going to come, but it seems like he's probably going to be like doing this for a little while longer, which will only bolster his Hall of Fame credentials. I guess I didn't think of him as being older than I thought, but I think I have been following his career since I mean. I guess maybe it wasn't the first WBC, maybe it was the second, but like almost 15 years now, we've been following the Kenley Jansen story. And I don't know, maybe it feels like he should be older than he is. Uh, but it's if he doesn't get in, then no closer ever will again, right? Like what more could you possibly ask of him? Uh, he's got the World Series ring. He's got, you know, great story, like coming from a catcher to being a great pitcher. Um, he's had two different cardiac surgeries that he's overcome. Like there is nothing I don't I think that you can point to and say, well, he's not going to be good enough to get in. And so now the only question is, by what percentage will he get in? And you and I will get to vote for him. Did you think about that? We might have a say in this somehow. I don't know how long he's going to pitch for, um, but at least a couple more years. We'll take a break and we'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, we like to look into three interesting topics and our three batter minimum. The first is, if I were to ask you who baseball's best starting pitcher is right now, how many names would you have to get through before you came up with the guy we're actually going to talk about? You might think to yourself, well, Garrett Cole's really good, and Spencer Strider's really good, and 15 other guys are really good. Is it Zach Gallen of the Arizona Diamondbacks? I know, not exactly like the first name that pops into your mind. Since the 2022 All-Star Game, there are 56 pitchers who have thrown 100 innings. Here are his ranks and some interesting stats. Uh, he's first in ERA, first in lowest batting average against, first in lowest on-base percentage against, first in lowest slugging percentage against, second most innings thrown. And the one that really shocked me, he's actually second 
by decimals to Shohei Otani in best strikeout rate of those guys. I did not see that coming. He is at two different incredible scoreless inning streaks. Last year, he put together a run of 44 and a third scoreless innings, which was the seventh longest ever. And earlier this season, 28 and a third scoreless innings. We've talked about him, I think, off and on over the last couple of years. He's had some injury stuff. He doesn't exactly play for like a winning high-profile team in the desert and all that. But Zach Gallen has a claim to being, I wouldn't say the most talented necessarily, but the most productive, reliable, best starting pitcher. Like it's him and Cole and Strider. And then it's him. I think it's him. Based on track record, I would put Cole ahead of him right now. But like he's been really good for a long time now. And it's like he goes under the radar because he plays for the Diamondbacks, who are not exactly a high profile team, probably one of the lowest profile teams. But, I mean, the consistency and also the extended runs of dominance, as you said, like he's had these two scoreless inning streaks. Um, it's He's also fun to watch pitch, right? He's like a true four-pitch guy. So, like, he's really – it's not like he's just coming at you the same thing over and over again. There's some real variety there. His changeup is just, like, it's so deceiving because it doesn't have the same type of drop as some of these other, like, amazing changeups. But it almost it, – it literally has that Bugs Bunny feel where it actually feels like it, like, almost, like, pauses before it gets to home plate. And like it's very visual, very aesthetically pleasing as a pitch. He's thrown 110 changeups this year. He's allowed zero extra base hits on his changeup. He will throw it both to right-handed and left-handed hitters. He's fun to watch pitch. Um, it's yeah, it's hard to believe that you could say he might be the best pitcher in the game. But that's kind of where we are right now, based on the fact that also a lot of the top pitchers in the game are either ineffective or hurt at the moment. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I looked at the Zips. So that's Dan Zaborski's projection system, which is one of the best ones. I looked at the top 20 projected starters coming into the season, and about half of them have had problems so far. So six of them have been hurt at some point. DeGrom, Scherzer, Verlander, Rodon, Woodruff, and Freed. Five of them have underperformed in some way. Corbin Burns, Aaron Nola, Nick Lodolo, Sandy Alcantara, and Zach Wheeler. Those last two will be fine, but they just haven't been as good as last year. Uh, one has had good performance with big questions. That's Shane Bieber, who has a 261 ERA, but a massive strikeout rate drop. And then you've had eight guys who've been you know, pretty good, right? Cole, Otani, McClanahan, Strider, Framber Valdez, Clayton Kershaw, uh, Luis Castillo, Kevin Gosman. It's, it has not been a great year to be relying on on your elite starting pitchers, as like the entire National League East could tell you, and as we'll get into with the Braves. And yet here is Zach Gallen. There, there's something that you said that stands out to me, Matt, and I'm not saying you're wrong. It just kind of struck me. You said he's been a really good pitcher for a really long time, and that's mostly true. He only somehow has three years of service time entering this season, which like kind of shocked me, and I get it. 2020 was shortened and all that, and he's been hurt and all this. Uh but he kind of feels like a guy we've been thinking about for longer than he's actually been here. And I think I know why that is. I think it's because he's been involved in two of the most interesting trades of like the last 15 years, right? He was a Cardinals prospect. Well, he got traded to Miami with Santi Alcantara uh, in the Marcel Hazuda deal. And then he was traded by the Marlins to the Diamondbacks for Jazz Chisholm, which is one of those deals that like every six months I take a different side on. And right now I'm squarely on the Arizona side because Chisholm has been a pretty good outfielder, but he's been striking out like nuts. And if I had to pick which one right now, I'd say Zach Allen. Six months ago, I probably would have said uh, Jess Chisholm. That's a fun one we're always going to be thinking about. Yeah, I I, I know we're, we're not planning to get fully into the whole Cardinals mess right now, but I, I do want to make a point about that trade for a second. I want to make two points about that trade, one of which is I was thinking recently, I was like, how is it possible the Cardinals are not more dominant considering they basically – got Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado in trades for nothing. 
And part of the reason is because they made one of the worst trades in recent memory by giving away two future aces. It could be you. We could be looking at the 2022 and 2023 Cy Young winners being oh, traded no. away in one trade for a guy who what Ozuna played one year for the Cardinals or two years and was just mediocre before leaving and signing with the Bra- Braves. So that's one thing. And then another point of the whole mess was I think I saw someone make this point last the other day. I'm not sure it was. It might have been some random Twitter commenter. It might have been some baseball analyst was like. If the Cardinals hadn't traded away two future aces, maybe they wouldn't have to worry about so much about who Wilson Contreras is catching or not. Uh, all right, we're not going to get into that whole thing, but I, I do want to point out Yana Molina only caught 71 games last year. He wasn't even like the regular catcher. The starting pitching was not expected to be very good. And why is the defense bad? That's the weird Cardinals thing. All right, we're sidetracking ourselves. Zach Allen, um, he's been awesome. Here, Here's the question, right? Uh, he turns 28 in August. He is going to be a free agent after 2025. The Diamondbacks are a really interesting team on the rise right now, I think. You know, like the, we've talked a, a bunch of times about their lineup. Like Corbin Carroll looks great. They got a lot of interesting guys in the lineup. Questions about the rotation, um, although it's looked better since they cut Bumgarner loose and they've got some young guys coming up. Is he a guy they're going to ext- extend? Like, I'm sure they would like to, but like, is he a lifetime Diamondback? And, uh, it, you know, if not, I don't want to say like, what are they going to trade him? It's not going to be this year. They're going to be fine. But I'm just thinking about the fact that the upcoming starting pitching market, which we'll talk about more in a second with the Braves for trades is going to be like nobody and free agents, you know, there's obviously more than that, but what do they do to make the most out of his value? It's so hard to know with pitchers these days, right? Like I know. he actually feels like kind of a prime extension candidate. Cause he's like, I don't want to say a late bloomer, but like a bit of a slow bloomer. And it's like, he's not that young. So he feels like someone, you know, given the uncertainties around pitching futures that like he'd be an an extension candidate given where he is in his career and how good he's been right now. Of course, he's also a Scott Boris client. They're not known for signing free agency extensions. So there's a lot to, to chew on there. The one last thing I want to say about Zach Allen is I cannot believe you, Mr. New Jersey pride guy. I was going to say it. That was going to be the segue. You're blowing it up. He's from Somerville, Somerset, Somerdale. Somerdale. Yeah. Right. He's, it's like just outside. It's a Philadelphia suburb really, but about an hour or so North of where Mike Trout is from. And yes, I was on it. Don't think I was going to miss out on that. He is one of the prides of New Jersey. And I, I don't, uh, clearly know where Somerdale is. The thing about New Jersey is I'm from the shore, right? And people will argue forever about how many different parts of New Jersey are there? Are there three? Are there five? Basically, there's North Jersey, there's the shore, and then there's the whole part down that's basically Northern Delaware that I know extremely little bit about. And this has been your New Jersey geography lesson for the day. All right, here's our next topic. The Braves have been uh, probably the best team in the National League, I think, and I certainly picked them to do very well this year. They got off to a great start, you know, as the Mets kind of scuffled and as the Phillies have kind of scuffled and, you know, the Marlins and the Nationals are sort of what we thought they would be. The Braves got off to a really good start. They are 25 and 12. They're the only team over 500 in the division right now. And they suddenly have massive rotation problems. Their ace, Max Freed, has a forearm strain. It's going to be out for a couple months. Kyle Wright, who had a great breakout season last year has a shoulder injury he's expected to be out even longer than that and i I would say you couldn't really count on either one of them actually coming back like in the allotted time it's not the first time they've had these problems so their remaining starting rotation looks like this spencer strider who's been great charlie morton who has had a very 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 long career bryce elder is their number three and then you're counting on michael soroka dylan dodd 
Jared Schuster, uh, Dylan Lee was the opener on Wednesday night. So they've got some real rotation issues. The good news is this. Fangraphs still has them projected as the sixth best rotation for the rest of the season. That includes 150 or so expected innings for both Freed and Wright combined, not individually, which is maybe a lot to ask for. The bad news is this. Charlie Morton's 39 years old. He has to stay healthy for the rest of the year. Spencer Strider, who is unbelievably good, has a pretty limited track record. He has to stay healthy for a whole year. Bryce Elder, who I barely knew who that was a month ago, has to be a reliable third starter. And then you got to get, you know, starts from all these other guys. And I know Braves fans are like, well, I got to make a trade. It's May. You don't make trades in May. (laughs) There's no starting pitchers available in May. There might not even be any in July. I'm still picking the Braves to win the division because I love their lineup. And I love Spencer Strider. And how could I possibly look at the Mets and say, oh, well, they've got a reliable starting rotation right now. They do not. I have concerns, I guess. It's going to be a, it's going to be a very interesting division race for the rest of the summer. I mean, the Braves have bought themselves a, the luxury of like a lead and the fact that, you know, the Mets and Phillies have so many uncertainties right now. It gives them a little bit of breathing room to kind of figure this out. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of Braves fans and baseball fans who are like, well, Bryce Elder looks like he's just going to hop in and he's going to be the guy. And of course, he does have a 1.74 ERA, which is great. But among uh, pitchers with at least 100 balls in play against them this year, he has the largest gap between his actual ERA and his expected ERA. He has a 431 expected ERA. His hard hit rate is in the bottom 10% of the league. So while he's someone who seems like he can at least take the ball, if you're expecting him to be like, oh, he's just going to slide in and like fulfill what like what what Freed was doing and what Wright could do, that's probably not the case long term. But at, you know they have that lead, so it's like they can slow play it. The question is like. Are these guys going to be – are Wright and Free going to be back by August 1st? And it's just like so hard to know with pitchers like what you can expect. And then even if they do come back, are you going to be able to rely on them to pitch deep into games at any point? At what point will they be ready to actually take on anything resembling like a full a full load? And for the few teams that might have starting pitchers – I mean for the few teams that might have starting pitchers to trade, this is probably a good development to the extent that you probably, you know, because the, the Mets are certainly not going to blow it up and they're going to want starting pitchers too. So now there's another team that might be looking to trade for starting pitchers that is a contender. One thing the Braves have going for them, I certainly don't want to say anything is guaranteed because we know that's not true. With the expanded playoff system, they are highly, highly likely to make the playoffs, right? So a big part of this for them is when they get to that point, you know, maybe Spencer Strider maybe starts game one, Ken Freed and or right start games two and three and they don't throw eight innings that's not how it works anymore can you get four and a third very good innings out of these guys at that point or is one of them out for next this season and the rest of the next season too i don't know the problem is the starting pitching market is going to be a problem and that's because if you look at the the bottom feeding teams they're there for a reason you're not going to get a good starting pitcher out of oakland or washington or colorado Cincinnati has good starting pitchers, but they're young guys. They're not trading you Hunter Green or Nick Lodolo. You know, if the White Sox blow it up, Giolito and Lance Lynn, uh, interesting. Although Lance Lynn does not look very effective right now, Giolito is an interesting one. If KC blows it up, I mean, is Zach Greinke interesting at all? If if San Francisco decides to make a move, I, Alex Cobb could be kind of interesting. Uh, but again, this is not a Braves specific problem. You know, we just talked about how the Red Sox have like zero competent starting pitchers. There's a lot of teams. Look at Baltimore. Like that's the weakness of their team. There are a lot of teams that are going to want starters. I just I don't know where they get them from. And what they might end up doing is like bullpenning a game a week because they've got a pretty interesting and deep bullpen. But it's a hard thing to do. For like an entire season, I, 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 there's nothing to be done right now. I guess is the point, right? 
rely on that lineup to pound the baseball. And uh, Acuna and Sean Murphy are probably the one and two MVP candidates right now. Uh, but it, the the biggest risk here, I guess, is you need Charlie Morton to stay healthy. Like, and he, he has to. And I don't know what they do if he doesn't. It's not just that. You, you, I mean, you mentioned Strider. Like, you kind of also want to, you almost want to keep him in bubble wrap, right? Because you, you kind of want him, given the way he pitches and the fact that he, I mean, he throws so hard, throws such a hard slider. He's not a big guy. He like he's exactly the kind of guy that you worry about. You know, you know, unscientific medical opinion, but he's exactly the kind of guy you worry about. So like, you almost don't want to start relying on him more of like being a guy. Oh, we can just lean on him more to throw more seven inning starts. Like that's probably not the guy he's going to be. So it all kind of trickles down from there. The one guy you didn't mention as a trade candidate is Eduardo Rodriguez, and I know the Tigers are surprising people. But he's the guy. He's the most interesting guy right now because he looks great. Although the, the Tigers are like seventeen and nineteen, and in that division, like if they stick around, they're not going to want to blow it up. He also has an opt out, which he's a really interesting contract because he can opt out after, out of it after this year, which he probably will if he keeps pitching like this, which hurts his trade value. Um, so it might be a situation where like the Tigers are like, you know, we actually can't get that much for this guy, so why don't we ride it out? Because you know the the best team in the American League Central has a worse record than the worst team in the American League East to tell you how things are going there. So um, I don't know. But Edward Rodriguez is the guy. But as you said, like the Red Sox have had that guy before. They'd probably be interested in having him back if they could make a trade for him. Braves, Mets, like there's, I'm sure there's other teams I'm forgetting. You know, we might have to talk about the Tigers next week, honestly, because Javier Baez has stopped striking out. And Miguel Cabrera looks like he might not make it through his farewell season. That's a different topic. We'll get to that one next week. Um, Here's our third topic. If you're not familiar with the name Ellie De La Cruz, now is the time to be familiar with it. He is a prospect uh, in the Reds organization. He's a 21-year-old left side infielder. He's the number seven overall prospect in the in the uh, minors from MLB Pipeline. And if you're a prospect watcher, you've known the name for a couple of years, right? He's, he's had some success in the minors. I want to bring you up to date on what the last five days or so of his baseball life have looked like. Last Friday, he made a throw that was tracked at 99.2 miles an hour. And now there's StatCast at AAA, which there wasn't before. That is to date the hardest throw in terms of velocity of any infielder in, in the majors or AAA this year, ninety nine point two. So that was Friday. The next day, he hit home run. And I, and I, and I will point out. I will point out that last year when O'Neill Cruz threw one like ninety seven point two miles yeah. an hour from shortstop, people lost their minds and it went like yes. viral five times over. And that was two miles an hour slower than what Ellie De La Cruz did. Yes, and that was only Friday. Saturday, he hits a home run, one hundred and sixteen point three miles an hour. That is like rarefied air. Oh well, that big deal. On Tuesday, here's what he did. He had a double hitting right-handed. He's a switch hitter. This is going to be important. So his double, 118.8 miles an hour. That is the hardest hit ball at any level we have tracking for so far in 2023. That was batting righty. He also hit a ball, a home run, 117 miles an hour batting righty. And he also hit a home run, 116.6 miles an hour batting lefty. He did all that in one game. So we asked our friend and colleague, Jason Bernard, to do some uh, data querying for us and said, hey, has there ever been a guy in the StackCast era, so that's since 2015, who has hit the ball 115 miles an hour from each side of the plate in the same game? The answer is no. (laughs) No one's done that. Most guys can't do it from one side of the plate all season, much less both sides of the plate in the same game. If you lower it to, uh, to 110, it's actually some really... I'm remembering some guys' names here. Uh, there are five, uh, four guys who've done this, hit 110 from both sides of the plate in the same game. Cattell Marte did it. 
Pablo Sandoval did it. Yasmani Grandal did it. And Kendry's Morales, I have not thought about him in a minute, did it twice. And that's it. And I know that some people are looking at this and going like, yeah, but is he a winning baseball player? This is kind of the same conversation we had with O'Neill Cruz last year, you know, where it's like it wasn't actually a great shortstop and he struck out a lot. And people were like, yeah, but the Pirates aren't any good. And we're like, yeah, but this is scouting tools, basically. Like we're able to say these are 80 tools. Like that's an incredibly impressive thing. It's a little bit the same thing for um, L.A. De La Cruz because even at AAA, it's only got a 317 on base and he's prone to strikeouts and all this. But I don't know how you can be anything but over the moon impressed by this. You know, this isn't a scout saying, hey, that's an 80 tool. This is like hard data saying he's doing things nobody in baseball can do and he's 21 years old. Oh my God, I cannot wait to see him in the majors like all the time. Couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, it's just like the highlights are incredible. I mean, the fact that he did do it, they hit those balls from both sides of the plate, that's kind of what it's like so mind, like mind bending for me. So you said most guys can't do it from one side of the plate. He did it from, from lefty and righty in the same game. And if you saw the highlights, you see that it's it's actually like kind of easy power. Like he like hits it. It's like it's like, I mean, he's six foot five. It's almost like a flick of the wrist. It's so he will instantly become one of the most exciting players in the majors as soon as he um, arrives in the majors. And yes, that is acknowledging the fact that, you know, as you, you kind of alluded to, in AAA this year, he has 26 strikeouts and four walks in 82 plate appearances. So yes, there are some, there are some holes in the swing, that, and that's probably why he's not going to be up imminently, but he will be a major leaguer soon enough, and he will be incredibly fun to watch. Yeah, later this season, I would think he's only been in AAA for 17 games, you know, and certainly the Reds aren't going anywhere this year. So I don't necessarily see that this is an urgency to get him up right now. You want him to work on the strike zone discipline and all that. But I don't think it's out of the question he's up later in the year. And I, I can't figure out what to make of the Reds. Like, there's a lot of me that looks at this team and says they're going to lose 110 games for the next five years. And then there's also a lot of me that says, well, Hunter Green's only 23. Graham Ashcraft is only 25, and I know Nick Lodolo is having a really lousy start, but I still believe in him. He's only 25, and then, you know, L.A. De La Cruz is young, and you look at some of the other guys, Jonathan India is having a bounce-back year. They don't really have older players on the team, and I could see the start of something, but I don't know. It's just like it's the the root of a plant that might not grow for three more years, I guess is the best way I can put it. But at least they're interesting, right? At least at some point they will call up Ellie De La Cruz. And on that day, I will turn on a Reds game above all other games, which is not something I do that often. We're going to take a break and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. What we like to do to end our show each week is that Matt and I each like to choose a guy who's maybe a little bit under the radar you should pay a little bit more attention to. My guy this week is Baltimore Orioles shortstop Jorge Mateo, who's having a shockingly great year. At the moment, he's hitting 282. He's slugging 515. He is a weighted runs created plus of 130, 12 steals, excellent defense. You put all that together. You look at the Fangraphs wins above replacement leaderboard. He is at the back end of the top 25, basically tied with Matt Olson and Anthony Rizzo and Jared Kelnick. And he's pulling off kind of a fun trick. His hard hit rate is way up from 33% to 42. His strikeout rate is way down from 28 to 20. That's good work if you can do it. We're going to look past the fact that his ground ball weight is lay up and his, his line draft rate is way down. And he's 
outperforming his expected stats. Don't don't look over there. Look over here. He's a really interesting guy to me. And as I said, I think Matt and I have both picked guys with like long trajectories towards getting to the majors. He was a signing by the Yankees out of the Dominican back in 2012. Uh, he kind of got some notice in 2015 when he stole 82 bases at two levels of A-ball. So entering 2016, MLB Pipeline had him as the number 30 overall prospect in baseball. And if you just look at the Yankee list from that year, number one, Jorge Mateo, number two, Aaron Judge, number three, Gary Sanchez, number four, James Caprillion. That's a pretty interesting list. And then the odyssey begins. 2017, he's traded to the A's in the deal that brought Sonny Gray to New York. In 2020, he was traded to the Padres for a player to be named later when he was out of options and not very likely to make the Oakland roster. It was actually the very first move in the summer of 2020 when roster moves got unfrozen. So he spent parts of two years with the Padres, 79 games over 2020 and 21, and did very little, 195 batting average, 51 OPS plus. Padres DFA'd him in August of 2021, and he was claimed by the Orioles got in 18 games for the rest of that year, bounced around a ton of spots, somehow ended up being the starting shortstop for the resurgent 2022 Baltimore Orioles. He started 150 games there. The defensive metrics loved him. He was worth 11 outs above average, 99th percentile speed. And even still, you sort of thought that's cool, but he's a placeholder, right? Gunnar Henderson's coming up. Westberg's coming up. They've got left side infielders. Joy Ortiz is coming up. This is just a guy. He's not like the guy. Well, he's still starting to shortstop and he's crushing the ball. And he's actually, you know, still showing that 99th percentile speed. Great defensive glove. I don't actually think this bat is for real, but the fact that he's still there when they've got all these interesting young players behind him and he hasn't been traded to the Dodgers yet is, uh, I think, credit to him. Now, if I'm a Yankee fan, I'm not thrilled about this because I'm looking around at the Yankees who are having unbelievable depth problems and I'm realizing Jorge Mateo is doing great. Tyro Estrada is killing it in San Francisco. Wait a minute. I thought the Yankees are supposed to be the place where guys came to get better. What happened to the Mike Talkman years? Not quite the same anymore. Bonus fun fact. He has three younger brothers. One of them is named Luis. He's a 20-year-old catcher who just signed in January with Baltimore Orioles. It's a family affair, at least until such time as he's traded to the Dodgers or whatever. Jorge Mateo. I liked that one. I actually almost picked Tyro Estrada as my guy this week, which maybe would have been more, okay. more appropriate. <laughs> really trying to twist the knife in Yankees fans. I will admit I had no recollection of him being the number one Yankees prospect ahead of Judge and Sanchez. Like that is one of those that like totally normally I would yeah, anyway, wow. Did not I did not know that. That's a that's a good one. Interestingly enough, like it did seem weird. Um you mentioned Gunnar Henderson. Gunnar Henderson, as an aside, having a really weird year because he's like not really hitting. But he is, seems to command the strike zone really well. He's got he's hitting 175, but he has a 344 OBP. So it's like it's sort of like a you know it's like Jack Cust without the power. Oh, um, Jack Cust. Oh, okay. Well, that that makes my whole afternoon here. Well, you know, I had to drop another Jersey guy. What do you? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm I'm staying in the Northeast for 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 my guy this week, and that is a. Uh, Rangers catcher Jonah Heim, who is a native of Amherst, New York. And if you don't know where Amherst, New York is, but we'll get there in a second. Um, You mentioned Sean Murphy earlier in the podcast. Sean Murphy has been the best catcher in baseball this year. He leads all catchers in Fangraph's version of war and in weighted runs created plus. But number two in both of those categories at catcher is Jonah Heim of the Rangers. He's hitting 318, 382, 555, which is Perhaps most remarkable because he's a guy who like came into this year as like the reputation for being, you know, like a 
sort of a defense first guy. Um, he's a switch hitter who is also in the top 10% in expected batting average, expected slugging, and expected weight on base. Yes, like he does have a 474 batting average on balls in play from the right side. So that's probably not going <laughs> to sustain itself. Um, but you know, like a lot of guys, you know, he's, he, from what I've from what I've read, he seemed to have made some swing changes in terms of like trying to. He used to have this big, like exaggerated, almost like kick his heel up when he like finished his swing, and he really tried to like quiet down his lower half. Again, I'm not sure he's going to stay at this like uh, Mike Piazza esque level of catcher production, but it is a you know when you look at the Rangers right now, where they are in first place in the AL West, despite the fact that Corey Seager has barely played. Jacob DeGrom has barely pitched. Like, if you thought of, like, oh, how are the Rangers going to compete this year? Be like, well, they spent all this money on free agents. Like, it'll be those guys to carry them. They've barely gotten anything from their two highest-paid players, but it's guys like Jonah Heim who are carrying it for them. Now, where did Jonah Heim come from? He was drafted 10 years ago by the Baltimore Orioles in the fourth round of the 2013 draft. Uh, other players drafted in that round included Cody Cody Bellinger and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. Um, and then he was traded three years later to the Rays for Steve Pierce. And then he was re- then he was traded from the Rays to the uh, A's in as the player to be, be named later when the Rays acquired Joey Wendell from the A's. And then in 2021, he was traded by the A's with Dane Acker and Chris Davis to the Rangers for Elvis Andrus and Aramis Garcia. Now, the coolest thing that I found about Jonah Heim is that in his first year with the Rangers in 2021, they're playing and they went to play in Buffalo. They went to play in Buffalo because that's where the Blue Jays were playing their home games at that time during that season. And what was cool about that is that Amherst, New York is actually like a suburb of Buffalo. In fact, his father said, was interviewed at the game that day, said he's, that Jonah was born seven blocks from Salem Field. So here's a kid who grew up in this small town outside of Buffalo, and he actually got to go play in a big league, a major league game down the street from where he was born and had like 40 fa- family members there. How cool is that? That is really cool. Uh, did you happen to see Rangers beat writer Kennedy Landry's tweet about Jonah Heim from Anaheim? a couple of days ago because it went somewhat viral and I thought it was very entertaining. Do you have any, am I going to drop like a surprise on you or do you actually know where this one's going? I don't know where this is going. Okay. So they're playing in Anaheim and they put up Jonah Heim's name on the scoreboard and they accurately note Jonah Heim has, has two children, which he does. He's got a, a son and a daughter. And the joke, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me, was something like, failed to name his daughter Anna. Now remember, where were they playing? They were playing against the Angels. I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the joke to land here. Because if, if Mr. Heim had named his daughter Anna. Oh. Thank you. There we go. We got there. Okay, cool. We got there. I thought that was funny. Um, this is a good one. I mean, both of our guys are similar in some way where it's just like people expect someone to get drafted and to be a star within three years. You know, and it's like if you don't, you failed. And it just it doesn't work that way so often. Sometimes it takes an entire decade and like four organizations. God, we talked about Brent Rooker last week. You know what I mean? And a lot of times people who are fans of the team that didn't find the success, like let's say the Padres, right? Because the Padres had Mateo and they had Rooker and they blame their guys. Like, hey, why couldn't our staff get the most out of them? And in some cases, that's true, certainly. But sometimes I think you just either need opportunity or a new voice. And it's just like, it was never going to work in place A for some reason. And you had to be in place B. Before we go, I want to amend something slightly that I forgot to say about Kenley Jansen, because it's, it's an interesting part of the story. And I think the fact that I didn't say it tells you a lot. 
Remember how much we talked about last year that he was going to be the guy who was going to get killed the most by the pitch clock because he was the slowest in baseball? I didn't even mention it. You didn't even mention it. Do you know why? Because it hasn't been a thing. He, he's been great. It hasn't mattered. I actually read it's a point of pride to him that he has had zero pitch clock violations so far this year. I think that's cool. The pitch clock did not ruin Kenley Jansen. So much for that narrative. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.